I read something the other day that inspired a whole new way of thinking and being. It was a simple quote. Sometimes the best thing you can do is not think, not wonder, not obsess. Just breathe and have faith that everything will work out for the best. Some days I can't imagine anything more challenging than this. Hello out there. How are you holding up? It's Shara Carruthers here and welcome to the Live Like You Love Yourself podcast. So what have you been thinking about and doing since we last connected? Well, Maria and I have been teaching up a storm. We've been connecting, creating, and personally, I've been thinking and wondering and not quite obsessing, but definitely diving deeply into what it means to be a student and teacher of yoga. And when I came across this quote the other day, one word in it really stood out for me, faith. So the Sanskrit word is shraddha. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. And the yoga teachers mention it very specifically as a critical factor to a successful practice in life. And you know, these days faith can be a little bit of a tricky word, but what we're talking about isn't the blind or religious kind of faith. It's a belief in the, the soundness of the path that we're on. It's a level of courage and conviction in our choices. It's that feeling in your mind and body that says, you got this. And it's a small or big part of every single action we take. And at a time like this, I think there's real power in acknowledging this special kind of courage that's really a part of all of us. You know, Maria and I were talking the other day about how one of the roles we believe we play as yoga teachers is inspiring this kind of faith. And from the discussions we had with our guest today, I'm pretty sure that she believes this too. Today, we're sharing a conversation that we had with Libby Hinesley. She's a yoga teacher and therapist based in Asheville, North Carolina. And she's also a physical therapist, or as we say here in Australia, a physio. And as you're going to hear, Libby is a master teacher, and she's got this particular focus on empowering her students to dive deep into their own experience of the practice so that they can better understand how the practice is serving them. I fell in love with Libby's approach, as you would imagine, and so many of the tools that she uses to help bring her students closer to their yoga and how their choices on the mat impact their experiences off the mat. I think teachers like Libby definitely restore my faith in the profession of yoga teaching and in the power of our yoga to change our lives and the lives of those folks around us. So please, please enjoy this chat that Maria and I had with the wonderful Libby Hinesley. Well, good morning. <laughs> it's morning here in Australia. Libby is here with us, Libby Hinesley, and she is in Nashville, North Carolina? Asheville, North Carolina. No. Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, Ash- I got it right, Maria. Oh, you thought I said Nashville? Yeah. Listen to me. No. First thing. Right. No, Asheville. <laughs> Asheville, North Carolina. And we've had, we've talked to a couple of folks from Asheville, um, which is exciting. I got some stuff to ask you about Asheville, but I won't do it now. Libby, um, thank you so much for joining us today. We're really excited to to talk with you. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So we, we thought we might just jump in um, by talking to you a little bit about 
your yoga because you're a you're both a physical therapist and a yoga teacher and yoga um, yoga therapist. And I had that question right off the bat of what came first for you. Yeah, good question. Yoga came first. I love it when people ask me that because yoga is my main squeeze. And um, I was a yoga teacher for oh, let's see, probably about six or seven years before I went to therapy school. Five or six years, something like that. And the reason I got into physical therapy is because I got so interested in wanting to know more about anatomy and about injuries. Because at the end of a yoga class, students come up with their quick questions, which I now know are never quick. And I never had any idea what to say about why their shoulder or hip hurt, but I was intrigued. So. And where did, and so let's jump, let's like go for even further back. What about yoga? Where did that come from? Yoga started in college for me. So um, when I was about 20 years old, it's about 23 years ago, I was in college and I took a one credit college class in yoga and I thought really cool. And it was with a really, really amazing uh, teacher. She was an Iyengar yoga teacher. And I just, there was something about it that I just really loved. And so I continued to take classes in that style of yoga for about five years until I moved to another place for graduate school, part one, and a whole different thing, environmental studies. I had a whole kind of career in that before getting into PT yoga. But um, when I moved to Montana for that, there was an Ashtanga studio. And then I got way into it. And I was a way into Ashtanga for several years. And I, that sort of started my relationship with yoga injuries. Right. That's interesting. So where in your journey did you then get to the Krishnamacharya style of yoga? Yeah. So I spent a couple years in Montana and a few years doing Ashtanga yoga. And then I moved back to Asheville in 2004. And when I moved here, I wanted to study yoga more because I had just been getting more and more into yoga. So I joined the teacher training program here. And actually, that's where I met Mado. She was in my group. And so anyway, um, that was more of a vinyasa flow. So I kind of got exposed to a lot of different flow styles of yoga and really um, got interested in Desikachar's work because we read some of his teacher training. So a couple years later, after teacher training, a good friend and I traveled to India and we spent a month at the Krishnamacharya Yoga Mandaram there in Chennai and just did an immersion in that lineage. And really, I had no idea what I was getting myself into, to be quite honest. I just liked Desikachar's books. And I thought that the center sounded really cool, that basically they had a program where injured people or ill people go there and get evaluated by a yoga therapist and, you know, get a prescription for a practice that's tailored to their needs and, and on and on like that. And I thought, wow, that sounds really neat. So we studied there for a month and it ended up changing everything about everything for me, actually totally altered the way I understood yoga and its purpose and how to practice it that, and it was a a way that showed me practice yoga without wrecking my body. And that was the beginning of my healing through yoga. That's beautiful. Can you talk even more about that? Can you open that up on how that changed for you? 
Yes. So the in the month long program there, I really I didn't know a thing about the Vinny Yoga lineage. Actually, I had no idea. But basically, every day I was there, we'd have an asana class, and then we'd have like a philosophy class, a chanting class, and meditation class, and it was just all, the whole gamut of this lineage's offerings. And I was just mesmerized by it. But the asana in particular was so slow and there was so much emphasis on the breath as the medium for movement, as the generator of movement in the body. The first week of it, I was pretty bored with it. I have to say I was this power yoga background and I was like, oh my goodness, what have we done? We're here for a month. And um, I just didn't get it. But about maybe the second week there, I started to notice that something was happening physically for me, um, that my body, I was just sore in places I had never even thought you could be sore in. The, the slow pace of movement was so challenging for me. And it was asking my body for so much dynamic stability that I was not accustomed to. Um, it took me a, a little bit to kind of come around to it. The other piece of it was that that pace of movement that is incredibly slow gives the mind no exit routes. There was no escape mm. my own experience. And it was very frustrating in the way that meditation was when I started that. Um, there was just nowhere else to go except in my experience. And um, as painful as that sometimes is, it's obviously, it's the pathway into getting to know yourself. And so I was getting to know myself, getting to know my habits and my judgments, especially about asana practice that I'd been carrying around for many years around um, what's correct and, you know, this sort of flavor of righteousness that sometimes lands in yoga culture. Um, well, can't really say sometimes it's, it's pretty thick, <laughs> but yeah. I was, you know, I was really, you know, in the face of that stuff. And I was also having a transformation of my body. And so I kept kind of following that lineage um, on my own and have been most interested in that ever since. And that was about 12 years ago. So um, when I got back the following year, I started physical therapy school. And the idea was I was so lit up about the possibilities of transformation that yoga has to offer. And I wanted to really get a strong background in anatomy and biomechanics. And um, so that's kind of what led me into physical therapy. But my plan all along was to blend them together. So that's what I do now. That's awesome. I love that you needed more dynamic stability in the slow practice than you had experienced in, in all of your various vinyasa flows and, and, mm. uh, and oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, the other piece of it for me is, um, I actually have a hypermobility disorder. I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, hypermobile, um, which is a connective tissue disorder. And I only actually found this out in the last couple of years, but it is probably why I've been so prone to yoga injuries over all these years. I've had all the classic yoga injuries, you know, had a 10 year long chronic high hamstring strain accompanied by sacroiliac joint pain you know, and hip pain and knee pain and shoulder pain. I've pretty much had all of the classic things that yogis deal with. And I was very stubborn for a long time um, about changing my practice because the message out there was always, well, just do more yoga. You know, you just got to mm -hmm. 
through it sort of thing. And and that I literally spent about 10 years there and it wasn't like life changing or life, you know, it didn't ruin my life, these injuries, but they were nagging chronic things. And I pretty much had pain every single day directly related to my yoga practice. And so what I understand now about hypermobility, because it's actually what I specialize in clinically as well as like personally, because it's my life, um, is that hypermobile people rely on momentum. They love momentum. They love moving fast because they have a really hard time controlling movement, motor control. It's a real challenge for them. So while not comfortable, it for me has been absolutely magic. We're transforming, you know, how my body works and how it feels to live in this body. Mm, fascinating. Yeah. So interesting. And I, I love the, I've found, I wonder what you think of it. I'm just, um, I also have had a high, kind of hypermobility, had very similar experience. Our biographies could lie right over each other because it, it, I did occupational therapy for the same kind of reasons. But, awesome. And I've ended up working with people aging. And I find that people who are aging have a lot of the same, um, same problems that people with hypermobility have. There's less elasticity, I suppose, in the connective tissue, but they, they again rely on momentum and have a lot of trouble controlling movement through range. And, it, and the Krishnamacharya style of yoga, the Vini yoga style is so much more helpful for them to get to know themselves. Have you found the same or do you have, do you work with older people too? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, in clinical practice for about six years, I worked in a standard PT clinic, outpatient PT clinic, and primarily we were dealing with older adults and I would absolutely agree. And I think part of that is that the slow pace of movement feels really gentle and it's very accessible. And the, the types of movements that we're generally doing in this style of practice just are, they're simple. They're pretty accessible. They're not anything extreme. And so it's generally safe for all kinds of different people. And what I find with the motor control aspect of the slow movement is it's just an opportunity for the brain to get connected with the body. And it, mm -hmm. in aging, that connection gets rustier. It's just not as sharp. It's not as fast. And we get a de decrease in proprioception um, as motor control and just brain body connections and interoception. And so though that slow pace of movement helps to cultivate all those things, which translates into more stability when you're walking around out in the world. And, um, you know, that's where yoga becomes training for life <laughs> mm -hmm. actually yeah. has relevance mm -hmm. to life. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested in hearing about um, how your experience in India impacted the way that you live and the way that you think about yourself and the way that you think about what's important in life. Oh, that is such a great question. Um, I feel like it's still evolving, but I do yeah. think a lot of seeds were really planted there because I think a lot of my neuroses were really wrapped up in yoga practice. And I think that's yeah. likely the case for a lot of practitioners because yeah. you know, how we do um, anything is apparently how we do everything, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and I think that I came out of a personality type um, and a way of kind of coping with being in this world that 
was very much about getting things right and knowing the right answer and and achieving things that are external. And so that was sort of my MO. And those are some strengths of mine, but they are also real blind spots and um, aren't all that useful, actually, as, a, as an adult in the world who wants to enjoy life. And that useful. But what I was doing in yoga practice was the same thing. And it really appealed to me to think that there was maybe a right way to do yoga. <laughs> that was appealing. It was really appealing to me to practice hard so that I could go farther. Actually, going farther in a pose wasn't really, didn't really depend on practice because that's just how my body was doing things. There were no boundaries at all in my body. But it was nice to be praised for that and to be applauded for that. That's a lovely ego boost. And it was nice to feel like I knew the answer, you know, Um, and that's where I find this sort of bigger issue coming out around the physical practice of yoga and the way we understand what is correct or incorrect in asana with our verbal cues. And so going into that practice in India and having this very, very different experience really was a paradigm shift on that. And I remember our group for that month was an all international group, mostly Western students. And um, all of us had come out of similar backgrounds with yoga because it's sort of what yoga was floating around in those times. Mm. Had an emphasis on alignment and correctness. I mean, basically that's where um, my experience of yoga emerged out of. And I would say most of practitioners in the United States 20 years ago, it was mostly Iyengar style yoga. So there was a lot of emphasis on getting the form correctly. And then that got translated into a, some notion about safety. And anyway, we all came out of that similar background and we would ask questions about the particulars of alignment. And I remember one student asking the teacher, where what angle was the foot supposed to be in, in this posture, whatever it was. And the teacher actually just looked confused. It's as though he did not understand the question. He did not know. He had no idea what this person was talking about. Why would it matter where the the angle of your foot is? Was sort of like his facial expression, you know? Because Mm. they emphasizing such different things. And what I found is that what they were, what the practice was cultivating in me was more of um, an internal process. From externalizing the whole practice of yoga to be something I'm supposed to achieve this shape perfectly, and then something good will happen to me, I guess. That was the message. I don't know what that was going to be. But this was a process of going inside, internalizing the practice. And to do that, you have to know yourself. And so this was the start of yoga asana being self study, actually, inquiry and. That's not always comfortable, but where that leads us to is actually um, really much more interesting place of getting to know yourself. And when you know yourself, then you know what matters to you in the world and you know what your values are. You know, a lot of things come from that, like all action hopefully comes from that. And so then we get to this empowerment place where how can this yoga practice 
not just get me accolades from my teacher and praise for being super flexible and, you know, getting a shape in a certain way, because that doesn't actually matter. But what actually matters is me knowing myself and knowing my values and then taking a stand for those things in the world. And that's where yoga needs to really show up right now in terms of its relevance, you know? Who cares about your triangle pose if you can't like show up as a human being when action is needed, you know? So I think it's just sort of grown. That bit for me has just grown over time. Um, so yeah, I would say that going inside versus outside in the asana practice was a huge shift. Wow. That's, that is so beautifully profound. And I love that. I'm so, I'm with you. I was with you like the whole way through that really just, just so with you. Cause I'm like, yes, yes. And you know, it's funny because we've been having conversations with people um, around all sorts of things, but you know, this idea of, and I don't necessarily want to take the conversation in this way, but you've touched on this. And I just think it's important to kind of kind of complete that cycle is we've been talking with people about things like social justice and politics. And there's so many people who sort of say, look, yoga, this doesn't yoga and politics or yoga and social justice, you know, how does those, how do those things connect? And you've just very, very clearly shown the connection between the practice that we do and who we are in the world and what we stand for in the world. And I just wanted to kind of underline that for anybody listening, because that's, that's it. That's the connection. Yes, thank you. I agree. And um, certainly it's more and more on my mind as we are in a collective place of just reckoning about, you know, what kind of human beings are we are we in the world? Yeah. And, and it matters. There's just so much that matters. Mm-hmm. And um, there's so much that we tend to get wrapped up in in yoga world that just doesn't matter. <laughs> It's just sort of silly, you know, when you step back and you think about these issues around social justice and climate change and things really matter. And in order to really step into that, we have to be able to um, see ourselves, look inward and see all the parts that we don't like and that we do like and just deal with that (laughs) and transform that. You know, I mean, yoga is about transformation. It's not about getting a pose right. It's about transforming um, this life so that it reflects your values. And I think that that's absolutely within yogic ethics. You know, we just look to the the basics of yogic ethics and there it is. There's not a, a long bridge from yoga to activism. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, um, I'm just trying to think of what I was going to say. I have a question. Yeah, go. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, go for it. Maybe I love it. I, I and I've got a couple of questions because one is kind of how do you how do you facilitate? I've got two questions, and I'll ask them both, and then you can wander away as you want. But one is um, how do we help our students, say in the West, facilitate that kind of internal alignment and that self trust in their own. Stop externalizing and looking for approval, but trust into that. Like, is that a process that just happens? And and I, now I forgot my second question. It's okay. Your first one was exactly what I wanted to ask. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, how do we facilitate that for students? Yeah, that's great. So, how do we help students move from an external orientation to internal? Yeah. 
One of the things that, you know, I love about training yoga teachers is to help of helping to empower them to change their language about the practice. So I think that's what it really comes down to is what a, a teacher says in class, what I say to my class um, really matters to how my students understand not only how to do the pose, but what yoga is about and mm-hmm. contained in these verbal cues that we use. So I think number one, we just need to say less about the body's position (laughs) and understand that the basics of the shape that we're teaching or the movement we're teaching are really just designed in my mind to communicate to students what we're doing because we have to say something, you know, we have to sort of describe the shape, but um, taking a leap from that descriptive shape to some prescriptive correctness is a really big leap. And if we can just back up and get more descriptive about movement and about the position, and then we can stop implying that this is like the only right way to do a thing. And so just being more general, I think is nice, especially when we're not doing crazy movements, like, you know, just Basic human movement is not unsafe. That's one of my mottos. Human movement is not inherently unsafe. Like mm-hmm. bodies designed to move in all these ways that it moves in all these different planes, um, in very complicated ways, and that is that's to be celebrated. There's nothing, you know, wrong with any of those movements. However, different ways of moving will pre um, basically produce a different effect not only in the body, but in the, you know, the mind body. It's, so what we say about a pose needs to reflect in some way what our goal is for why we're even doing it. <laughs> and we might have a variety of different goals, you know, that we uh, might want to get out of a certain posture. And depending on which goal we're after, we're going to cue it in a certain way that helps us achieve that goal. So really knowing what to say about the body's position requires we dig underneath that to say, why are we even doing this pose? Is it just because it's the cool thing to do or does it serve an actual purpose in our practice? Because it cultivates some sort of inner experience. That's really what it's after in the end. It's not because we want to check the box of we got down our dog right today, but it's that we actually wanted to cultivate some inner experience. And so I find that cueing students around what is their inner experience, um, that's really helpful. So not about lining up your big toe in a certain way, but noticing sensation. And I guide students a lot into just kind of more interoceptive cues, right? Sink Sink beyond the skin and notice what you feel. There's not a certain thing that you're supposed to feel here. We're just going on like an adventure inside. And I usually up at the beginning of class, kind of invite students to take on an attitude of inquiry. Use that word, Mm. inquiry. Let's just go in and see what we find because yoga practice, I think when effective is like a mirror and asana practice is going to be like a mirror for us to see our structure, to see how our movements happened, to see our habits around movement, 
And so we're just going to go on a big self-study adventure. And that's kind of how I talk about the whole practice. I might cue on noticing qualities of sensation like temperature and pressure. Mm -hmm. Does it feel for the feet to be on the ground? What does that feel? Mm -hmm. And I have worked on refining language um, so that I'm not naming their experience for them. And that's hard. Um, But I am working on that personally so that I can just bring awareness to feet on the ground. What does that feel like? What's the quality of sensation of that? Rather than saying, feel grounded, (laughs) you know, Um, because they may not feel grounded. And I don't want to disempower people by naming their experience for them. I want to lead them into some understanding about their own experience. Interesting. I, I remembered my second question while you were talking about that. You, culti- you brought it out again. I've, I've been asked a number of times from a number of students, and I completely agree with what you, what you just said. I think, that, I think inviting that interoceptive internal awareness, in, in a kind of internal alignment. But students mm-hmm. have said, well, what, what does it, uh, it feel like when I'm doing it right? In other mm-hmm. words, what does, yeah, how does that feel? And it's, um, it, I often will give some anatomical, some anatomical details about where they might be moving from. I wonder whether you do that or, you know, what is the feeling of it being right? Does that, does that sound like totally contrary to what you said? No, no, it doesn't. And I, I will do that too. I may give like a broad swath of possible places they may feel this stretch. Let's a stretch, then a side stretch you may feel in the side of your hip or your waist or your ribs or your armpit. And um, these would all be really common places to feel this in your body. But I will, and that's a really common question. Mm. As you ask, where am I supposed to feel this? How do I know if I'm doing it right? And I'll often just reflect back to them. Well, I can see that you're absolutely doing this right as far as we're understanding rightness in this. And mm. so you're supposed to feel it wherever you feel it. And your job is to find out where you feel it. And and the other thing I like to give as a general cue is that, you know, when we're stretching uh, and moving in an asana practice, the sensation of stretch ideally is one that is well distributed. and mm-hmm sort of covers a large squishy part of your body. I will say that a lot. Just, you know, it's pinpointed. It's not sharp at a little bony, you know, um, attachment site for a muscle or at a joint. It's broad and it's well distributed. And so that's one of the cues that I'll use to help people adjust their position to more, I quote unquote, safety from my perspective, where we're staying within a reasonable range and our sensation will tell us whether we're staying in a reasonable range. See, I, I love that concept of well-distributed because yeah. I think whether that's energetically well-distributed or the forces through the bones and the joints are well-distributed or the, the sensation of stretch, that, that to me means nothing is short or sharp or jagged in any one place. Mm-hmm. And it's got that era, sukha, asana. That's, that was beautiful. Yeah. And do you, do you ever teach students anatomy like your own like I know you're teaching yoga teachers anatomy but do you teach your students anatomy you know not that often so it's a funny thing I love teaching anatomy to yoga teachers 
or to anyone who wants to come to the anatomy workshop, right? So like when I teach anatomy workshop, um, I will talk all about specific positions and trying it this way and trying it that way and noticing the different effects that happen and why and understanding the relationships between muscles. I mean, I can talk about that for days on end and I love it. But when I'm teaching a yoga class, just a general yoga practice, it's just, I don't approach it as an anatomy lesson. Um, Mm -hmm. And I often will sort of encourage yoga teachers who are learning anatomy with me to understand that just because you're learning more anatomy doesn't mean your yoga class has to be an anatomy lesson. It Mm -hmm. actually means this anatomy understanding could be in the background. It's in your back pocket and it's going to inform your teaching, but it doesn't have to be what you talk about. And for me, when I'm teaching a class, I may talk a little bit about some important muscle groups. For example, I teach a back care class a couple times a week. And so I often will talk about the importance of gluteus maximus, for example. We do a lot of butt strengthening, actually, in that class. And so I'll talk about that a little bit. But my general approach to teaching yoga is to have a very breath-centric practice where mostly I'm talking about the breath and I'm talking about slowing down and I'm talking about coming into um, an awareness of rhythm and this connection between the movement and the breath and the awareness all being linked, like really tied together as closely as we can tie them. That quality of rhythm that emerges there is sort of like, it's just magical for me. And so often will that's what I'm talking about in the class, but my anatomical and mechanical understanding has led me to sequence this class in the exact way that I've sequenced it, you know, and choose the postures that I've chosen and all that kind of stuff. But so it's a little bit of like two different um, Libby's, <laughs> the Libby mm-hmm. and the Libby that teaches yoga, a little bit different. That- that actually brings it brings it it back or me back a little bit to one thing that you said earlier about the goal about a goal in yeah. in class or a goal in the practice mm-hmm. and i with the time that you said that i was thinking is it is it up to us as teachers to set a goal and if so what does that look like mm-hmm. um or is it up to us to set up this environment where the the uh students themselves are, you know, are free to kind of understand a goal or are given Mm -hmm. guidance to, to, to create, do you know what I mean? To, to, to associate the practice with some goal that makes sense for them. Yeah. I think it could be either or, or both. That's a great question. I really like that thought. Um, And, you know, at a beginning of the the start of a class, sometimes there's uh, an opportunity for students to say, set an intention. And Mm -hmm. that could be a time of a goal setting. How do I want to use this practice from the student's perspective? Do I want to focus on um, moving only 75% of my available range today? Or do I want to focus on how closely I can stay connected with the breath? I think there could be a lot of different options. But as a teacher, my goal, I'll have a goal. Why am I using this posture in this particular order? And 
that gets us into sequencing, really. And if we're going to understand the goal, even just from a structural perspective of using a particular posture, then we have to understand how it works in the body. And then so then we kind of have to understand anatomy a little bit. So anatomy is sort of like the basis down here, but it just gets us to understanding movement. Then it gets us to understanding why we might choose that movement in a practice because we understand what it does in the body. Right. And then it kind of gets us into this more experiential place of enjoying yoga practice. But this is why I love to teach yoga to teachers is because without that foundation, it's hard to understand why you would choose any posture in particular, you know, um, other than everyone's doing it, it feels good. And so I'm going to just mm-hmm. here, but when we try to understand sequencing, wow, it gets really complicated <clears throat> and sequencing concepts aren't something I find that at least newer yoga teachers have a lot of experience with Yeah, to do with neuromuscular patterns and, you know, preparing certain muscles for, you know, stretching or lengthening or releasing and the sequencing really matters. Yeah. So anyway, back to your question about goals, you know, um, so in my back care class, as an example, I'll definitely have particular goals that I want to achieve with each posture and with the overall sequence as it relates to the body. However, my verbal cues throughout that sequence are pointing more to a goal of, I want people to go inward. I just want to lead them inside their own experience to explore sensation, to really lean into sensation to see what comes up and to see what they notice about their own body. Maybe they notice something that's really different on the left side from the right side. Just pure observation of your own experience. That's usually kind of the goal I have for students, but it's an interesting idea. And maybe I'll start doing this to give them an opportunity to set a goal for themselves at the beginning of practice. Mm, It's my, um, my my study of yoga therapy had Ayurveda at the at the foundation of it, mm-hmm. and so that's really informed the way that I teach and the way that I practice. And my and I'm so I'm so happy to hear this all of what you're describing. I really am because mm-hmm. all of my teaching and practice has moved in this very same direction mm-hmm. uh, around mm-hmm. you know inviting students to to tune in and to begin to learn themselves and their body. And that's all been with Ayurveda as a, as a basis. Yeah. Um, But then the other aspect of Ayurveda that's helped to kind of just speaking to the same idea of creating a goal is to help drive or not drive, I should say, but invite students to find balance in their practice. Mm -hmm. Balance is such a weird word there, but it really just means this sort of return to yourself. And so an understanding of um, what that feels like Mm -hmm. and then what that takes in terms of um, your focus in the moment, you know, whether you're, uh, it it just goes all over the place. But I really love that because for me, that's really what the goal is. And so that, that's where I'm I'm inviting students to, to, to go and to come back to and to create a practice that will support that. Yes, absolutely. I love that. Love that concept of inviting students, period, you know, rather than, yeah being in charge. You know, one of the things that I like to say to my students and, you know, it's also, I'm teaching myself, right? Whatever we're doing other people is stuff we need to learn. And so this is really 
been profound for me to change my teaching this way. But what I'm saying to my students all the time is you're in charge of your body all the time. And you don't need a reason to skip a posture or to change a posture. You just don't need a reason. <laughs> you get to do that. And so I'm just so um, kind of riled up about this concept of empowerment of our students. And, you know, the history of modern yoga is just so thick with misuse of power and um, abuse. I mean, it's just, it's sort of shocking, I guess. I don't know if it's shocking or not anymore, but, you know, we have to do it differently. And the way we do it differently is by um, stopping stop assuming that we know better than our students about their experience. And so it doesn't mean go willy nilly and just fling yourself around wherever you want to be. It just means we have to ask more questions. We have to understand who's practicing a little bit more and we have to keep giving them the power back and we can give them options. Try this. How's it feel to do it this way? What happens if you do it that way? Because these are okay ways to do it actually. And you're the one who knows your experience. And I'm just sort of like giving you some opportunities to explore it. But um, we just have to give the power back to students. I love I so agree. Yeah. It's so, it's so trauma sensitive. And so also connected to that concept of social justice, that you're not, you're not somatically dominating anybody. You're, you're really giving them, you're facilitating their experience with themselves. Yeah. yeah. It's also it's also quite foreign, interestingly enough, to students. And that's one of the things I'm interested to to hear your thoughts on this, Libby. That that's one of the things, you know, sometimes because there's been such a um a kind of a standard in terms of what you expect as a student and who you kind of expect yourself to be as a teacher in class, right? You stand at the top of the class and you mm-hmm. direct them to mm-hmm. what to do, and then students show up. And a lot of times they say they show up because they want to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. And so there can be this, uh, this disconnection or this, this um, I don't know, this sort of feeling of uncertainty for students when they're actually, when we're giving it the power back to them. Mm-hmm. And so Absolutely. I wonder for, t- for, for teachers and also for students, we've got people who are, you know, who are yoga students mm-hmm. who listen what would you say um, is first for a teacher, at least, what would you say is a great way to kind of bring that in for a soft landing mm-hmm. as opposed to just sort of, if, if you know what I mean, as opposed to just sort of saying, okay, students, you're cut loose, you know, the right. trial, you know, kind of, you know, and, and for students, you know, what potentially would you, would you say is a, is a good way to, um, to embrace this idea? of, yeah. you know, of being empowered in class and what that could mean for you. Totally. So really, this is a fine line. This is a tricky line for a yoga teacher. Um, and if uh, the yoga teacher can walk this fine line, then I think the student can feel safe and, and free at the same time. But so what I would say for the yoga teacher, and I see this a lot, there's a lot of anxiety in mm-hmm teachers about keeping their students safe. There's all this exactly. safe. And in order to be safe, I need to teach it correctly. It's all about correctness, correctness, correctness. And I often will tell teachers, you know, in clinical practice, I mostly treat yogis. I treat yogis. <laughs> and um, I always joke, I'll never be out of a job as long as I treat injured yogis. <laughs> um, <laughs> although I hope I will be. But um, 
And a lot of them are yoga teachers, a lot. Yeah. Of them. And what I see in the yoga injuries are not people who don't understand how to do things correctly. They're not just, they don't, they've been practicing for years, you know? And what I see is that the injury arises because they've been practicing it the way someone told them was correct, but it turns out it wasn't correct for them. Mm-hmm. And now they're injured. So that I think helps to shift yoga teachers perspective a little bit. And I also just go over that the truth that there is a, a myth about what is normal human form, like that there's a body that is normal. <laughs> um, okay. And that's just not true. There's such a wide spectrum of normal. And they're all normal in the ways that our bones are shaped and put together and the different angles of our joint capsules and, you know, all this thing, which leads to some of us being able to do some movements and others not being able to do those movements. Um, so just having that perspective about anatomical variability really does put a lot of people at ease and let go a little bit of their grip on this concept of correct. And, and I also will suggest just pick a couple cues, a couple things that you can say about a posture that just generally indicates how to get there. Um, say fewer things about it because a lot of those more complicated cues that go on and on, you know, they're going over the heads of the students anyway. It's really overwhelming for people. So less is more, less is more and give them a starting point. And then within that, play around with giving choices. So here are a couple ways you could try this movement and this posture and try them on and see how they feel. That's something you can say to your students. And then you get to decide which one feels nice for you today and they have equal value. Um, so get away from saying things like level one, level two, yeah. or my my all time least favorite phrase: the full expression. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! Because you know, whatever you're doing is the full expression right now, and tomorrow it might be different. But you know, giving us a couple choices, and it's not like unlimited choices, right? A soft landing could be. I'm going to show you a couple different versions of this posture. I'm going to invite you to try out both of them, and then make a decision based on your own experience today. And that's a great way of handing power back in this little little chunk of power coming back to the student within um, you know, just a couple little options here to explore. They're both perfectly safe. They're both perfectly correct, but they may produce slightly different effects in the body. And then you're teaching the student that guess what? Your practice is for you. It mm. is to have an impact on your experience and now you have an option um, to make a choice based on your own experience, which is also very, you know, trauma um, oriented. Like, here's you feeling this and feeling that. Now ask yourself, which one do you want to feel? And then keep doing that one. And that's great practice. That's great practice for people to do who have habitually um, not been given their power back or, you know, are in a habit of giving power away to someone they think knows far more than they actually know, which is mm-hmm. often and 
in a yoga class. Um, you know, I used to feel that when I was starting out teaching yoga, I still feel that now. Um, people expect me to know a great deal more than I know about a wide variety of topics, actually. So I love it. It comes back to kind of the premise of yoga that we all have the resources that we need. And I think what you're talking about is really trusting yourself to kind of create that space, but then trusting the students that if invited and if given and if communicated that you trust them, that they'll find they'll find what feels nice for them, but they've really got to feel that from you, that you don't have that value system that you genuinely, you're exactly. for them to find themselves. And I think, exactly. do you speak explicitly about them finding themselves as a, as a goal or, cause I, I tend to be a way over explicit talker. So I'm so admiring the way that you're doing this while creating this space. It's so trusting. Mm-hmm. Yes, no, it is. And it takes a little bit of a leap of faith actually. And it was a little scary when I started doing this, but I'll mm-hmm. give you an example. I think of what you're asking. I, before everything shut down a few months back, I used to teach a weekly class rolling on uh, for self massage and we would roll on therapy balls for, you know, most of the class. And, and we would, I would really approach that practice as practice in getting to know what your response is to sensation, because this is going to be a sensation. We're massaging the body on these little therapy balls and yeah, we're going to feel some stuff. And so it was all an inquiry into how do we respond to sensation and intensity and what happens in the nervous system when we get there and do we freak out and what stories emerge about this and what should we do? Right. And so it really would come up a lot in that class where a student would be doing a technique on the therapy balls and they would be grimacing and, you know, huffing and puffing. And they'd say, ah, is this supposed to hurt? You know, and I would go over and say, well, um, I would expect you to feel some interesting sensations for sure, but tell me more about what you're feeling. I'm so interested, you know, and, and they say, oh, it just hurts. I was like, well, I, I hear that it's uncomfortable, but I'm interested. Is it more, is it dull and throbbing? Is it achy? Is it like electrical? What's the quality? it. And I'll just keep asking questions about what's the quality of the sensation. And, um, and the key is, this is like one of my big messages to my yoga teacher trainees. Here's the biggest key. Maybe the most important thing as a yoga teacher in my mind is that you don't freak out when your student is scared. (laughs) Just play it cool because um, how you respond to their fear about whatever the movement or the sensation that they're feeling um, really sends such a huge message. And it's a really powerful message. And the message that I'm trying to send is that we can inquire about sensation. Like I, I trust that what we're doing is safe. We're just squishing on some muscle tissue. That's all that's happening right now. Um, and that's totally safe. However, that's intense. And we're learning how we respond to intensity. And in the end, student, you're in charge of how much intensity you feel in class today. You can change it at any time. Um, but it's, you know, so there's this difference between um, sensation and like danger, you know, mm-hmm. 
And, and so holding space for someone to come to that understanding on their own and to just understand, hey, if you're freaking out and you're feeling scared and you're feeling uncomfortable, nobody's holding you here. You get to change positions. You get to make a different choice and um, use it as training ground for them to be empowered to make a different choice. And what I often will see in yoga teachers, especially who are newer, and this is definitely what I would have done um, earlier on is someone uh, communicates discomfort or fear. Uh, we're going to get out of that right away. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, big alarms go off in my head and, you know, they're going danger, danger, danger. And um, we're just going to scrap that and whatever, you know, and, and maybe even apologize or something like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which then sends a different message and it sends a message about frailty or fragility. And it sends a message that movement isn't safe. I mean, there's a message about safety there. Be very, very careful with this body. And that's an unfortunate message because in most cases, you know, of course, depending on pre-existing injuries and all that practitioner specific stuff in most cases, if we're doing basic movements, they're generally safe. Yeah. It doesn't mean we're not going to feel sensation while we do them and make adjustments and all those things, but you know, human movement, not unsafe. So um, holding this paradigm of this body is made to move. It's very resilient. It's less fragile than we sometimes tend to talk about it as it's way more adaptive. So let's just try adapting this first before we scrap it all together. Let's explore a little bit more. So that's really my approach to it, whether it's in the intensity of the ball rolling stuff or just in a movement and someone's concerned about correctness. I'll let them know, you know, in that case, I may say some more about anatomy so they understand, huh, cool. Femur bone does this and it does that and turns out both safe things for it to do. Example, thank you. And is that that takes us in? I know you um, you teach to people in pain. Do you use yoga therapy for people in pain? Yep. Yes, I do. I do treat a bunch of people um, commonly with pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and is is so? I mean, it sounds like that communication. uh, You know, avoiding that language where we're communication communicating frailty. Is that the center of what you're doing with people in pain? Because it's it's yeah. pain. Pain is so hard. Yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely what that's the central kind of theme I would say about a yoga practice for someone with chronic pain, um, because there's going to be a very high likelihood of fear of movement, mm-hmm. and that and a very like high likelihood of a very hypersensitive central nervous system, which we call central sensitization, where the the actual tissue of the central nervous system has changed, the spinal cord and the brain, to make it more sensitive to inputs and make it more likely to generate a pain output, even when it's not that appropriate to do so. So we know we're dealing with this very sensitive nervous system and a cognitive, you know, based fear of movement um, and mistrust of the body. And uh, so that's the starting point generally. And so with the yoga practice, it's all about giving the power back. It's about demonstrating um, 
here are some movements that aren't going to cause damage. This is the message. And, and you have to understand anatomy to say this too. I realize that it's more complicated. Chronic pain is complicated. I always say chronic pain is extremely complicated, but how we treat it is actually quite simple. <laughs> the technique, they look very simple, but um, here's some safe movements. It doesn't mean they won't be uncomfortable, but we have to start delinking discomfort from safety or from yeah. unsafety, right? Discomfort from danger. Yeah. Those have to come apart. And so that we can just actually then sink in and explore without all this overlay of fear, because that fear is part of what cultivates so much myofascial tension in the body, which hurts. <laughs> so it's this constant feedback loop, you know, a circular thing that fear of movement leads to less movement, leads to deconditioned tissues, which are acidic and more chemically painful leads to more tension, especially with our nervous system kind of on high alert leads to more and around and around we go and we have more pain than we don't want to move. And there we go again. So the yoga practice is just an opportunity to step outside of that circle, circular um, pattern and say, all right, we're just going to be here and try a few movements that we can understand are safe. We're going to, Accept that we may have some sensation and we're going to just keep affirming. I feel sensation and I'm safe. I feel sensation and I'm safe. That's the motto. I actually use the mantra. I actually teach people um, almost every time that I am working with someone who has a chronic pain scenario is on the inhale. I'll invite them to say to themselves, I'm aware of sensation. And then they can say to themselves and I'm safe. And so that's what I start with and I say, you modify that so that it resonates with you. What's the message you feel like your system needs to hear and say that, but that's a great little seed planting activity, you know, that, yeah, I can start to delink these things. And then I have a lot more freedom. I can start to get my body into more workable condition where it's just going to be able to flush out all this chemical irritants and all that kind of stuff, even just metabolically. I can now enjoy some practices that will help calm down my nervous system a little bit so that it is less on hyper alert. I can learn about its habits. All those things become possible when we start to just be willing to play the game. That's often how I present it. Just play this game for five minutes. You can the story right where you left off in five minutes. But for now, we're just going to like delink these and see what happens. So, but it's all about someone having um, some confidence that, um, that it is safe. They got to believe it. Right. And they'll believe that when they're ready. So building rapport and, and holding that um, perspective as a yoga teacher of not acting scared about someone else's um, pain will provide that confidence over time when that person's ready and it's up to them when they want to do it, you know? So again, it's just that holding space and not freaking out and not having a judgment about what this person should or shouldn't be able to do today because they're coming mm -hmm. a whole life, a whole life that we know very little about. Man, this approach has such a huge impact in the context of, um, a culture, and I think mostly about the United States, where pain is everywhere. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's in our bodies, it's in our um, you know, the way that we see each other and 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 it's growing as well. And I think about, you know, just how chronic disease is just, you know, running rampant in in the United States and in Western cultures as well. I mean, it's even happening here in mm-hmm. Australia. And I think, yes, what an empowering way to um, to address some of this for the long term, because I do think a lot of these things are a lot of these situations are responsible for um, for the fact that that our lifespans are kind of shor- shortening, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, and even and in even a greater context than that, you when you were talking earlier about, you know, our responsibility as yoga teachers not to, you know, to freak out, but just to be there and hold space for people to sense into their own bodies and to perhaps become more tolerant to discomfort. Yes. Um, I feel like that's exactly, those are exactly the skills that we need um, right now because mm-hmm. discomfort is is a is an everyday experience for most people i would say in our you know current political and and um you know in our health and wellness i suppose environments um so our ability to become tolerant of that discomfort um which we are oh man we there we have so become intolerant of any kind of distress we just oh, reach right. for comfort in the form of you know television or in the form of food and it's because we don't have that tolerance Absolutely. I could not agree with you more. Exactly. Um, And often in the chronic pain uh, kind of situation, uh, I will talk about that. I think our culture is very sensation averse. We just very, very uncomfortable with discomfort. And the thing is in chronic pain, one of the big questions to get to when working with someone with chronic pain, or if it's you and to inquire in yourself is what matters to me, actually. I mean, it's, um, you know, what is worth having discomfort for basically? Mm. Question. And that's you know, not something you would ask the person with chronic pain, you know, at the outset, but, as we unravel this connection and all the stories that get bound up with each other in chronic pain, we unravel those and we start to delink discomfort from danger. And then we start, okay, if I'm going to accept the moment as it is, then I'm going to accept some sensation here, some discomfort. And I have some judgments about that that are going to be really hard for me to change. And that's okay. But I have to ask myself, what's life for? What's matters in my life? And I've got to decide to go ahead and get off the couch and go live that life anyway, even though it's uncomfortable. And exactly what you're saying, that's what we have to do right now is just human beings. Yeah, it's real uncomfortable and it matters enough to do it anyway, (laughs) you know? Um, Yeah. And you know, I don't think that question, what matters, I just want to point this out because we talk a lot about this sort of stuff in yoga. Um, but I don't think the question "What matters to me?" is an always an easy question to answer, mm-hmm. and I want people to recognize that because sometimes I think people feel like, "Well, nothing comes to mind immediately." So you know, what's this? I'll, what's this all about? Or I'll look outside of me, and you know, so and so says this is important, so I'll just go with that. I think people should recognize that answering that question t- can take some work, yes. can take some feeling, can take some tuning into, you know, 
what lights you up or tuning into what makes you feel bad and really being willing to hold those feelings and look into them. It's Mm -hmm. not for most people, you know, it's not going to be an immediate thing. And so it's worth doing that work in order to have those answers because when you do, and they change when you do have those answers, like you were saying, it gives you access to so much. It gives you so much power. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think there are a lot of unexamined, just general belief systems that may start to um, need more examining when, when we're actually discovering our own experience and the, you know, the feeling of different emotional states in the body that give us, give us information about actually how we feel about this or that thing. And that may require us to change something about how we thought reality was. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. that's not an easy ask. Absolutely. Um, And it can be uh, much, much easier to do some activity or some version of yoga practice that doesn't ask that much of you, you know? So it's very courageous to practice yoga. That's one of the things I, I really believe. And I tell, especially my yoga teacher students is that this is, you know, this is a big deal to go inside and really learn about yourself is not, not that fun sometimes and definitely not pretty a lot of times, but, um, but really valuable and can lead to some transformative directions in life, ideally, you know, um, to come to some understanding about what does matter so that when you get to the end of life, there are less regrets. And I'm one of the things that one of the teachers I admire a lot, of course, in the Vinny Yoga lineage is Gary Craftsal. Um, I study whenever he comes anywhere nearby. I love to take his workshops. And one of the things he always says is that he was taught by Krishnamachari and Desikachar, one of them, can't remember, that all of yoga practice is simply preparation for death, preparation for the moment. And, and that's sort of how that story unfolds in my mind is that, yeah, you know, if we can live according to our values, then we won't have regrets at the moment of death. But if we don't know what our values are, we can't live according to them. <laughs> mm, I love it. I love how that came out of your own story, the, the, the discomfort you had when you were at the Mandiram in, in Chennai, that that it, it was kind of boring and kind of conf- confrontational, but then that's become your work is to invite people there. Mm-hmm. And, and in a way, when we can feel that little bit of distress and, and distress tolerance, when we can build that, create that yeah. awareness and have that, that is so empowering, but it's almost like you have to lean into that, which is uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what we want to go in the other direction. Yep. That's right. Yeah. And I love that, the, that the teacher helps you, helps you kind of partners with you. And, and, you know, when you were talking about your own, I suppose your own work with yourself is what I heard you say, where you are not freaking out, that that was your big message is not to freak out and to hold space because in a way you're, you're, you're calming people down and, and helping them regulate and have the courage. You hold that space for them to feel safe, to explore and to empower them to pull out if they need to. But I feel like that's what holding space is. Yeah. You know, right. Right. Maybe, maybe holding space is actually just co-regulating. <laughs> that's what- Absolutely. Absolutely. And so how does that, 
how does that show up in your own practice now? Like now that yeah. you've done all these things, because you've had, I mean, I can't even believe, I look at you, you should be a hundred years old for the things you've done. <laughs> it's amazing. And uh, how does that look now? Like in your own, you're living in a pandemic and you're, I'm assu- I assume, teaching on the, on Zoom or are you mm-hmm. teaching? Like, what's that look like for you right now? Um, yeah, so there are a lot of things going on for me right now that are um, uncomfortable. You know, it's a pandemic and that's uncomfortable. And there's all these social justice issues that I care about that are really uncomfortable. Right? This is a lot for people. And so I found that for me, teaching on Zoom is, of course, different, but I'm finding that it still feels like I'm getting to connect with people and I'm learning how important that connection with my students has always been to me that I didn't even realize that mm. to share the practice with people and to have a connection that is um, heartfelt and supportive in both directions is just really that kind of holds me up and gives me an orientation, helps me stay oriented to who I am, actually, because it's a reflection back to me of what I care about. And that has been really, really profound, I would say, and surprising, actually, um, teaching on Zoom. I just didn't expect that to be clarified quite so much, but it really has been that what a a lifeline that yoga practice is. And I really think it's that for so many students as well, because it's community and there aren't a lot of places we find that we just don't have a lot of spaces for community um, in our culture. And so it plays a really big role in heart happiness, you know, heart, mind. And without that connection quality, the heart, can't really be happy. And if the heart's not happy, the body's not going to be happy either. So um, I am experiencing that reality in my own life in the last few years in a big way. And it's been really kind of exciting. I kind of get it now that this um, relational space of the heart is maybe the foundation of all healing and um, is what allows us to move forward to what we love, despite the discomfort that may come along in this embodied experience, you know? Um, So anyway, all that is an attempt to answer your question. The other thing that came up is just shifting away from correctness and letting yoga be more of a, an exploration for me. It's just so much of a gentler way for me to deal with myself. It's just like a little bit of tenderness and gentleness in my writing, which is just so I'm just so grateful for it because it's absolutely what I've always needed. And I feel like I can, I kind of have that now. I have a place to do that. Oh, that was so beautiful. I know really. I just, you know, for a time I was beginning to, I suppose there's still a little bit of that underlying um, be so concerned about yoga and not yoga itself, but the yoga world and, you know, what it's really creating um, and what it's potentially taking away from us. But talking to teachers like you, Libby, has well and truly just, and we've talked to other people too, but just given me a whole new level of hope for, you know, for for yoga teachers, for students, 
and for the world. Because this is, to me, I feel like you've discovered what yoga really is and you're you know, doing the work to, to share that with as many people as possible. And I honestly think that's the work of a yoga teacher. And so thank you. Oh, thank you. I, I agree. It's kind of been the evolution that it's what makes me excited and hopeful also about this moment in time and kind of the fate of modern yoga is that, wow, it actually is well suited to be very relevant here. And so. Absolutely. Well, yeah, this has been fabulous. Yeah, Yeah, it's been fun to chat with you both. Is there anything, how can we, I I looked at your wonderful YouTube channel and and you've got fabulous classes there, a number of them, really beautiful and spacious. So I can see, I I got to see how you were teaching. And um, where else can we direct people to your website and to find out about your work and what you're sharing? Yes, absolutely. So I have a website. It's just myname.com, libbyhindsley.com. And then there's another project that I'm about to launch this fall, which I'm really excited about. And it's in collaboration with my dear friend and colleague, Mado Hesselink of the Yoga Teacher Resource Mm -hmm. Podcast. And um, we've been friends for a long time and we're bringing together our interests and skills in um, a project called Anatomy Bites. And so it's for yoga teachers who want to understand anatomy more, get confident so that they can, you know, bring that confidence into their teaching and, and feel like they can be more transformative with their teaching. Anyway, it's a, it's a project that's going to launch this fall. And if you go to anatomybites.com slash cues, C-U-E-S, since we kind of talked about some cues today, you can do anatomybites.com slash cues. There's a free download actually about like my tips for transforming your yoga class cues that you can download and check it out in exchange for your email. And if you'll be on the email list to be the first to know about the launch of this new project. Fantastic. Fabulous. We'll make sure to put that into the show notes as well. Cool. Yeah. And also just to highlight for any teachers, any yoga teachers out there, especially if you're new, um, practice or sorry, um, experience of teaching and also just additional education is so important. So yeah, things like things like what Libby's talking about, really, really important to um to I think being able to integrate your yoga kind of into your life and and even into your teaching. So yeah. I just wanted Definitely. to throw that out there because yeah, people often think, well, she just knows this stuff. And it's like, well, she's done the work. Yeah. I she's know. done the work and a lot of additional study too. So that's really absolutely important I mean, I work. often will reflect on those early years of teaching yoga and just how nervous and not confident I felt about all of it. And it just takes experience and practice moving through it and keep learning more. And the more we all learn, the we do. So I like I like that it's anatomy bites because it's not intimidating. Sounds like little nibbles that you can digest. Little nibbles. That's right. Little bite-sized chunks that you can digest and it's not overwhelming. Exactly. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you all so much for having me. This has been such a lovely conversation. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Oh, likewise. Take care. Okay, you too. Okay, was I right? I could have kept talking with Libby for days. She is both knowledgeable and she's wise and she's someone whose ideas about what yoga is and can be, they really gel with my own beliefs. 
I personally, I think it's kind of amazing that the idea of empowering students to own their practice can actually be a novel concept in a yoga class. But I'm definitely a bit of an evangelist about giving students whatever permission they need to dive into their own unique experiences for the gold that lies there at the center. So huge thanks to Libby for giving us your time and for sharing your wisdom with our community. And for those of you who may be interested in diving a little bit deeper with Libby, she is offering a program called Anatomy Bites. I think we talked a little bit about it in the, po- in the podcast. And this is a program that's support for yoga teachers who are on their path to understanding and communicating anatomy a little bit better. She has put together a free downloadable to get you started, and you can find a link to that in the show notes. Okay. So stay tuned for more goodness coming your way. Maria and I are working on some more episodes and we're super keen to have a lot more juicy conversations about how to live your yoga. So tell us, is there someone out there whose yoga you would be interested in having a view into? Maybe there's a teacher or even some admirable person who says they owe their attitude and their approach to life to the yoga practice. Let us know because we're always on the lookout for interesting and compelling folks to have a conversation with. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the podcast the podcast, so that you'll be notified when the next episode lands. And as always, thank you so very much for listening and for sharing this podcast. We are humbled by the response and we are so excited for this community to grow. Until next time, please take care of yourselves, okay? Namaste. Namaste.